Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey, feelers. Welcome to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hello, everyone. This week, we are coming to the end of what has been a super fun series covering films that we love with some sort of aerial or space combat. We reminisced about The Last Starfighter and Iron Eagle, which apparently is a beloved movie in Yemen, according to our podcast download charts. (laughs) Two weeks running, we are number two in the Yemen Yemen. film and TV category, Patrick. (laughs) So... (laughs) I don't know, man. They love them some Iron Eagle. Uh, But then we gushed about (laughs) Top Gun Maverick. And now we get the chance to cover the young adult version of Full Metal Jacket meets Starship Troopers, which is as intellectually and morally challenging as it is entertaining. And I am sure this will be yet another great conversation. We're just going to jump right into this one. It's a late night for us. We have been watching a lot of college basketball this weekend. We are both exhausted (laughs) from celebrating no college baseball that's how exhausted we are uh we're tired but we're excited to talk about this so we're just going to jump into the conversation here uh this is your spoiler warning what's the movie inner's game yeah (laughs) if you haven't seen or uh, listen just roll with it folks okay it's gonna be like that if you haven't seen or read the book for Ender's Game, then we are going to give it all the way. And it's a really, really fantastic story that I would highly recommend you find out what's going on for yourself before you hear us talk about it in detail and spoil it. And then you can always come back and listen to our discussion, of course. So without further ado, Patrick, ah, this movie, I, I wanted to lead off with this because you said something that I felt very similar to the other day when you were watching the movie, you texted me and you said, I'm enjoying this a lot more than I remember enjoying it. And so I wanted to see if maybe you could just elaborate on that kind of like, what were your initial feelings when you saw this movie for the first time? Had you read the book? Did you have expectations? And then what was different about watching it for the podcast this time around for you? Well, I enjoyed it. I remember enjoying it just on my own uh, when I watched the first time I had read the book and it it prompted me to want to read the next book but there are so many in the book series and it goes off um just just a number of different tangential kind of mini stories uh Orson Co- Scott Card has a robust library of the Enders saga I think there's a Speaker of the Dead and, and all this other stuff I have um, wanted to reread Ender's Game, and then per a good friend of mine, she read a lot of the books. She says Ender's Shadow is probably the best follow-up to it because of the path that it follows, that you're familiar with the story, and it kind of goes in a similar kind of way. But watching it this time around, it was something that I just knew I liked it, but I never really felt like I loved it. I never felt like it was something that Stood out to me. I remember seeing it in the theater and being like, that was really good. I think Krisha saw it with me. At least she says she did. It was around 2013. So it was before Carson or after Carson was born. And I think she vaguely remembers watching it with me. But watching it this time around, just sort of in prep for the show, I had a different set of eyes on it. And that different set of eyes sort of translated to 
being more immersed in the story because I hadn't read the book in a while, loving the concepts that were coming out of it. It felt very mature. It didn't feel like it was trying to overreach in the story that it was telling. The visual effects felt appropriate. They didn't feel like overkill. Like it really felt as though Gavin Hood and company were just putting together a movie that wasn't trying to outdo the book. They weren't trying to put their own spin on it. They were really just trying to tell the essence of what that story is. And I think that's what I felt connected to is that from beginning to end, I didn't really feel like things were missing. I felt like we got a a, a complete story. We got a little bit of the backstory on Ender and his brother and Valentine, Valentine. And then we move into the world of space. And then we get the training. It did feel truncated because I knew I spent a lot more time in the book kind of fleshing out a lot of the transitions of undergoing to different company or different groups, different uh, different teams. But again, when you try to take something that's that conceptually kind of out there, the way that it was delivered, the way that it was executed felt accessible. It felt a lot of fun. And I just enjoyed watching it. I remember just not wanting to stop. It was a uh, like an afternoon I was watching it and my son came in and he wanted to play some uh one of his new switch games i was like yep definitely want to do that and i gave him a time frame and then i looked at the time left and it was like over an hour and i was like and aaron there was something in me that was like dude i wish there were more time like i wanted it to be like an hour and a half i I didn't want to leave the world that was being shown to me and it wasn't that it was incomplete it just it felt very immersive and i was like i i just love being here and it it's one that i i would love to see on a bigger screen, I was watching it on my tablet because, you know, we have three people in our house and everybody has a screen, so you kind of have to take what you can get. But it's one of those movies that I feel like feels really big if you watch it on a big screen. Like it feels not epic, but it feels as though the scenes that we watch, particularly with the battle room and the and the last battle sequence, the simulations and then the actual battle, feel like, man, if this is on rpx or if this is in imax or if this is in like 40x or whatever it is that you got to go do top gun maverick in this is one i would want to see and experience that because it felt very immersive so i enjoyed it a lot more than i thought i would i mean i I knew i would enjoy it but it just kind of overwhelmed me with like man this is really good and i'm sad we didn't get a follow-up because that would have been amazing yeah i'm right there with you on that last point especially is that this is an incredibly rich world. And there's a reason that this is an all-time classic in the pantheon of science fiction greats when it comes to novels. People talk about this. It brought about this challenging question that we had not seen done before. And we've seen it now done many times after in various ways. So it might not quite seem as fresh to some people who are discovering it for the first time. But if you got around to this before getting into a bunch of sci-fi, you would have had your mind blown. Or if you'd read this back when Orson Orson Scott Card first wrote it, and the way that the series transitions out of Ender's Game and into Speaker for the Dead, and how it really, I will get into this some, but it, it takes a different look at the ramifications of what a character has done. And it actually deals with those. That is really great storytelling. And it made me 
wish we'd gotten more. I, I remember finishing it this time around and texting one of my, or texting my housemate upstairs and just being like, man, this sucks. <laughs> I, this, the cast is phenomenal. The c- CGI is outstanding. The tone is great. Like, I don't understand how this bombed. I was a little bit sad about that. And I'm pretty sure I saw it in theaters when it came out because it wasn't that long ago. I don't, was it, I guess it was 2013. I, I'm sure I did, but yeah, like you, I would quickly go back and rewatch it if it was to ever like re release in theaters. And I highly recommend you when you have some time and get a chance to, to watch it on your big screen. Yeah. It looks outstanding. I can tell you that <laughs> I watched it on my, you know, 65 inch OLED screen and it's just absolutely gorgeous. Um, it really does pop and it looks, it has a great design to it. I was watching the making of documentary and it was important for them that they kept it grounded to an extent, like the ship didn't look, it looked more like an aircraft carrier, like innards of an aircraft carrier. And it was consistent with like what we know of the military versus a wacky sci-fi design. Uh, the only wackiness that you ever really see is the interesting part, which is the battle room. That's that in and of itself is all you need. Cause that's such a cool, unique concept to, to play with. But otherwise the design is real clean and crisp um, but anyway, it just looks great, and I loved it as well. I want to, I guess, start really just by kind of diving into the big points of this whole thing, since we both enjoy it on a f- big level all the way through. But the ethics of this story are what make it special. And there's a couple different things to talk about here when it comes to ethics and the moral dilemma of the ending. But I want to start by just looking at the fact that you know, right from the fact first part of the movie, it throws us in. I want to say it's the the opening scenes of the movie is showing us Rackham's attack mm-hmm. on the carrier, yeah. alien carrier, the Formic carrier. So we literally open this movie with a lie. And that is what everything is built on, is this military and government lies and propaganda as a method of preparing us for a fight that they have deemed on some level of leadership as the right way to approach this conflict. They restrict communication to the outside world from the cadets, so they they lock them into a bubble. They teach them throughout the different activities that they endure and the testing that they go through that sacrifice is acceptable to accomplish the end result, which we see play out in Ender's ultimate actions. And I also find it a little bit kind of cringy when Harrison Ford's uh, character, um, Hiram, is like kind of surprised at the fact that Ender is willing in his final quote simulation to sacrifice a thousand lives in a troop carrier when they've taught them through the battle room phases, the entire games that, it doesn't matter as long as you get one guy through that center gate. That's all that matters. The rest don't. You literally told him to do it. All he was doing was acting that out in his acting or putting his training to use. And, you know, all of this leads to them ultimately letting Ender destroy 
an alien race, an entire alien race. He commits genocide without even knowing it. He is completely betrayed. And there is a pretty telling conversation at one point during, I would say, the midpoint of the film where Hiram, and, played by Harrison Ford, and Major Gwen Anderson, played by Viola Davis, a fantastic pairing, by the way, who were extremely passionate about each other during the making of Doc. They were both like just lauding each other with praise about how awesome it was to work with each one another and how they felt like the other was so super talented. Viola, at one point, she's like, it's Indiana Jones. She's like, I'm working with Indiana Jones. <laughs> and I just, I, that was so cool, right? <laughs> to see like another Oscar winning actress who is just in awe of the fact that she's working with Indiana Jones. But anyway, it's after there's this, you know, incident with Ender where he almost kills Bonzo and they're, she's kind of bringing about the, the questions about like what they're doing. And Hiram says, when the war is over, we can have the luxury of debating the morality of what we do. And Major Anderson responds by saying, we're using these children to win the war. But if they come home, it's my job to put them back together again. And so there's these conflicting viewpoints that ultimately are, I guess you would say, on the same side. Like they both kind of committed themselves to this idea, even though they have their personal issues with it. And for me, man, like all this stuff is just, it's so powerful when you're watching it. And I think the movie does a great job of dealing with these heavy questions and this really, really heavy topic in a way that is so entertaining. And it's fun to see Ender going through this process. It's easy to want to root for Ender. We've grown up in a video game generation where every kid at one point or another wishes they could just like get money to play a video game. And now people can, <laughs> you know, you can be good enough at video games that you could make a living off of it. And here we have someone's skills as a gamer, essentially as an less as a gamer in a last starfighter kind of way, more as a tactical genius yeah strategist yeah. but it's it's similar like you could think of it as a strategy game because he's doing it through simulated um combat for the most part and you have him you you want to root for him right because you can see yourself in this kid so much easier you can believe like how cool it would be for this kid to reach these heights and be the leader of this incredible you know, military act that's going to strike back and get revenge for the formic invasion and put an end to it and save Earth and all of these things. And I got to tell you, I find myself really leaning towards being on the side of the military in this movie, the, the government and the way that they went about it. Because I don't think that if you told the characters, told the kids what they were going to be doing, that you would get the same result. There is an inherent amount of risk you will take when you do not know that you are committing people to their deaths in order to get the job done. And they talk about that in this movie, about how, I think they said it 
in the early on uh, when they're talking about Ender's brother and sister, Violet and Peter, and how they were both very strong candidates. But the way they worded it, they say Peter was too prone to violence and Violet was too prone to compassion. And they need the perfect balance of both, which is what Ender is ultimately able to bring. And I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful story because there is no perfect answer. Like, even though I probably side with their methods, I don't feel good about it. And I couldn't feel good about it either way because you just don't know what the outcome would be if you didn't do it this manner. And so um, I think it's great from a, a questions standpoint and just to see the psychology of it all play out yeah. is fascinating to me every time. Well, and when you put kids in the situation, you obviously default to an empathetic kind of approach. And so when you get to the conclusion for yourself that the international military is the side that you would probably go with, that tells you and me and whoever's in the conversation that there's something more complex here than just, oh, let's get naive kids to do this. Let's get strategists and video gamers and people that, you know, kids that know how to do stuff that aren't going to really ask questions to do this. No, it's not that. It's about the fact that there is a purity to being a child. And I guess I would say the age limit's like, what, 11, 12 years old in this in this movie. Yeah, it's so. still Yeah, but we also have to recognize the world that we've been set up to see. I mean, this is essentially the top gun of the international military, the best of the best, and you want to be a part of this. I don't know that a lot of the kids want to kill the enemy. I think the enemy itself is a byproduct of well it's it's a it's a goal but for them they want to be just a part of the whole thing i don't know that anybody in that room or in those on those teams are thinking i'm ready to take take down the uh the the formix i'm ready to do that because they never felt that i mean th- when you hear about the history of the formix wiping out hundreds of thousands of people it's almost like 9-11 happening and you're recruiting kids that were born in 2005. Like they don't know the impact of 9-11 aside from history books and the internet. They don't feel the empathy of the Twin Towers being hit and people dying. What they see from my interpretation of the movie is excitement and a feeling of purpose. And the formics are sort of just the, I don't know, the, I guess the MacGuffin for them. But for Ender, he is special, and he's been called out by by Graf and by Major Anderson. And I love their chemistry, not only as actors, but I love their dichotomy because you have Colonel Graf who has a grudge. I mean, you can tell. Like, he wants the Formix dead. He doesn't care. And you have Major Anderson on the other end who cares about the kids. You've got someone who's looking at the short-sighted goal, kill the Formix, and sort out the bodies later. And then you've got Major Anderson, who's like, we need to think about what's going to happen after all this. And I don't like bringing up COVID any more than the next guy. But the same argument can be said about when you pulled kids out of school for a semester and a half, and you sent them all home and put them all on Zoom to learn. The impact that that's having or that has had on kids 
you can't ignore that. And so when you look at the short-term fix versus a long-term fix, I think that's a big theme in this movie is if the short-term fix is kill the Formix, well, what if we don't kill all of them? It doesn't matter. We we're, we get out here to do what we got to do. And so you have these two characters in Anderson and Graf, and I think that the personification of Ender being sort of this blend of his brother and Valent and was it was it Petra that's more compassionate? Yeah, Violet. Valent- Violet, Valentina. 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 Yeah, Valentina. Violet, Valentina. Yeah. Well, I don't know why I've got the names mixed up, but <laughs> no, Petra's Haley Haley Steinfeld. Yeah, yeah, that is yeah. exactly right. College baseball, yeah. basketball, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> college football. Let's just throw it all there. Um, but I, but I think you're right that the way in which they see Ender as being sort of a balance of both, I also see some interesting manipulation because they don't want Ender to be compassionate towards the Formix. They want him to have compassion towards his team so that he can have empathy and he can train them up. That's a characteristic of good leadership is the ability to have that emotional intelligence. So when he gets the ragamuffins or the rejects or whatever he calls them, to be part of Dragon Company, these are all the the folks that they're good enough. They're just not good enough for the teams that they're in. Apparently, he's seen by Colonel Graf as someone who can do that. And so the compassion, this is where I think Colonel Graf is such a genius because he knows how to mold Ender. He knows how to bring him to a place where he, at the beginning of the movie, it's so great to see Ender's like, I'm not going to, I can't be a leader. I don't know how to do this. And by the end of it, you get Sergeant Dapp, who I think is amazing. That is the <laughs> one of the best moments in the entire movie. Where he salutes and it's like... When he salutes him. Yeah. Watching Ender go through this transition over time of obtaining leadership, not because he wanted it, but because he's sort of... It's in him and it's coming out. I I can't argue with Colonel Graf's approach of isolating him. You know, keeping him from that empathetic side to elevate that sense of leadership. And then it's ironic that when Ender leaves and he gets recruited back, he tells Colonel Graf, I want to be able to talk to my sister. <laughs> and that takes leadership. I don't think he would have been able to do that at the beginning of the movie. So, again, watching all of this progression, I think that's what influences the inability, the great inability to sort of side with one or the other. I mean, on the surface, you're like, why are you making kids do this? At the same time, they're probably the best kind of soldiers because they're not questioning everything. They don't have history. They don't have tangibility to the enemy. And Ender being as unique as he is, he breaks through that. Right, He breaks through and is able to almost communicate with the Formix. And of course, we get to the end in that pivotal moment where he's talking to the queen or whoever she is, and then they ride off into the sunset to start a new race. But it's just, it's so cool to see how he is both manipulated and how he deals with that, how he navigates that. Because I never felt like he was acting older than he was, even though he had the weight of an adult on his shoulders, the ability to do what he did. I think those simulations sort of helped me appreciate that or helped me 
feel comfortable with him doing that because if I knew that he was going into battle with a gun and a helmet and all this other stuff, I could believe the battle room and I could believe the simulations. And so when I find out the first time, like he does, that he didn't, there wasn't a simulation, he actually annihilated a whole planet, I can believe that it happened. But if you would tell me at the beginning of the movie that this little kid is going to be the one who destroys an entire alien race, that's going to be a far-fetched notion. We had to get to that point. And I think that's where the story really, really is effective. Yeah, I agree. And I, I like the way in which Ender is played, in, the, in whether it's in the movie or in the books, but we're talking about the movie. But I think it's a good performance, first of all. And I think it's important because when we're talking about you know him being that perfect blend of violence and compassion, he never seeks out a fight. He doesn't try to start with violence. In fact, his first instinct is to deflect and to try and lessen tension, right? And to get out of it. In fact, he is willing to defer. Multiple times he tells Bonzo, listen, you just tell him you won. We'll, we'll, we'll lie. I'll let you take the praise. Just leave me the F alone, right? <laughs> just, I don't care. I just, I, I don't want to get into it. But then when he is pushed and it becomes not an option anymore because someone is inflicting violence on him, he comes with the answer to why he kicked the bullies on the ground at the beginning of the movie when they ask him. And he says, knocking them down was the first fight. I wanted to win all the next ones too, so they'd leave me alone. And that is the brilliant strategist part of his mind where he understood, and I think that is one of the things that like was so just impactful for the military that they wanted, that's what made them want him and believe in him so much is because he had the mindset that you didn't just punch back to stop the action in the moment. And that's because it matches what they wanted to do to the Formics the whole time, unbeknownst to anybody. They didn't just want to be able to fight back. They wanted to utterly destroy them so they could never have to deal with it again. And that is what Ender showed them he could be able to do. Yeah. yeah. It's and a, and it's I love that leadership point. moment too, where he brings Bernard in um, because you get that hilarious, you know, Bernard's being a bully to him. And the great dig on Bernard that you brought up to me <laughs> that you noted in the in the classroom that that's so good. What did she say? Something about his your mom must have slept with a plumber or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's something like that. He he puts the message in the um in the tran in the on the screen or something like that that only the students can see. <laughs> it's like, yeah, and he or, says or, that's why you look like a plumber or something. He basically the yeah. dig was saying that his mom, he's a baby of his mom cheating with the plumber. Maybe that's why he looks like a plumber. Anyway, it's pretty funny the way it plays out in the movie. And then it goes on and Ender gets Bernard on his team. And what he what does he do? He encourages him. He tells him, I didn't choose you to be here, but you have value and we're gonna use your value. We're gonna we're gonna use you and we're gonna be better because we have you. And I, and I'm gonna encourage you and I'm gonna give you responsibility and I'm going to put trust in you. That's those are all leadership qualities. And you watch as Bernard, even as this young kid, 
you can see it visibly in the acting, in the body language, where he's reacting to that. And you see it happen in sports and in life all the time. People are like, oh, you're going to give me this chance. I'm going to now rise to that occasion because I feel empowered to do so. I feel confident that I can do so. And Ender was so good about bringing those things out. I think one of the only things that I would have liked more of in the movie, and again, it's hard, you're just, you're, you don't have enough time. But I remember in the books, there is a really great and deeper relationship between Ender and Bean. They are so close friends. I mean, to the point, I think there's even, I want to say that there's an Ender's Game version written from Bean's perspective. I forgot the name of the book, but they, I, I want to say Orson Scott Card rewrote it as if it was like Bean's story experiencing the same events. So Bean was a much bigger character in the novels than he ended up being in the movie. And that was, I, I would have liked a little more from that. But again, you, you yeah. can only go so far with that. Yeah. Well, that, that book was the, that's Ender's Shadow. So that's the that's what it is. Book that, that makes sense because yeah. Bean was Ender's shadow. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's a ton of I, books, a couple, and I really want to get into them eventually. Go ahead. It's it's just the book series is it's complicated because there are there are lots of them, and you can read Ender's Game, but you don't really know it because Ender's Shadow, I think, is the next book but it doesn't progress the story but it's a very compelling book and so orson scott card he's one of these guys that it's probably challenging to adapt any of his books uh for the big screen because not only of the the weighty issues and themes and things that he's got going on but the fact that he's kind of all over the place and so there's part of me that's like i'm happy with ender's game i'll be probably happy with ender's shadow and that's fine i'll just let's stick with that but it's not my uh it's not my favorite it's not a book series that I want to just seek out even though I I kind of dig the the whole world building universe that that we're getting introduced to I'd kind of like to see everything leading up to the formic invasion well I say invasion the formic um landing on earth and by the way let me just say this the 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 Hiram maneuver is a little bit too close to the Independence Day maneuver that killed the uh, the aliens in that one. Now, obviously, Orson Scott Card wrote his book before Independence Day happened, but at the beginning of the movie, I'm like, I think that maneuver was done before from an alien race that was trying to attack Earth, but I can't be sure. Yeah, that's the one thing that I, I can't remember if we get more info in the book on how it goes down, but it's not really thoroughly explained in the movie, I don't think, very well. I mean, the Formics were seeking a source of water, from what I recall. I mean, there's still a battle that's happening. They're still fighting us. Like, it's not... I mean, were they just coming peacefully and we attacked them? Is that what they're well, saying? Well, Ender was saying, based off of his kind of connection with the Formic Queen, that they came for water. They were just trying to colonize. And it's... Right. It's, I'm but, just saying, and, and that I know still that's still like, doesn't so work. Fact, yeah. <laughs> we're well, there. <laughs> yeah, we're there. But what we don't see, again, we're like Ender and his crew. We only see what the military wants us to see in terms of the narrative. Who knows? They may have come in and tried to communicate 
and the military may have interpreted that as a sign of like a threat and they just started blowing things up. That's that's one of the intriguing things is when you watch this play out, regardless of if you were going to put the Formics as the enemy. Ender makes a really great point. He says they weren't about to attack. They were getting ready to go to battle, but they weren't proactive in what they were doing. You know, as you mentioned before, the government, the military sought them out to destroy them completely. And so it makes me wonder what happened on Earth. Yes, thousands and thousands and thousands of lives were lost. But where was the miscommunication? I mean, if we're led to believe that the Formics are a friendly race of people and all they wanted was water, what happened? Who got trigger happy? Was it the Formics? Was it the humans? I don't know. And we're meant we're not meant to know that. What we're meant to see is the fallout of some kind of miscommunication because by the end of the movie, we know that they're not hostile necessarily. They're desperate. They need something. And absolutely, they might be going to Earth to get water and that's perceived as a invasion but maybe we could have lived uh, cooperatively with the formics and you know because we you know earth is made of what 70 percent water is that is that the right percentage and they're like hey this this planet we can make do with we can share we got here yeah we could share so i think we're meant to sort of live in that ambiguity of going who shot first and it raises those questions why are we fighting is it because we're getting revenge or is it because we are scared of what we don't understand, which is very much a human character, right? Yeah, it's, it, rem- it reminds me of Arrival and the same situation where we have all of these different ships and there's no way to communicate. And the whole movie is about trying to learn to communicate. And the less we communicate or the, the, the more of a struggle we have, it leads quickly to the pursuit of just we need to nuke them (laughs) because we don't know what they're going to do. and We don't trust them and we can't allow them to take the first shot because we don't know what their tech is and we don't know what they could do to decimate us or, you know, whatever these, their capabilities are. We have to just defend ourselves, period. It doesn't matter. And those are the kind of questions that I love in science fiction. Those moral dilemmas, those, because they're the real ones that we would have to deal with if we ever actually impact, I mean, it's more likely I would say that we would have to deal with that kind of thing. And it, it creates this whole issue around the counterattack that we're talking about with the formic and, you know, Hiram explains to Ender that they have the formic contained on this planet. They've kind of boxed them in. And he says, the purpose of this war is to prevent all future wars. And then at the end, after Ender has, wiped them out. I want to call out a specific moment too, because there is a brief scene after it goes down or right before it goes down, I should say where Mazer played by Ben Kingsley and Hiram Harrison Ford. They're telling Ender that tomorrow is the final simulation and that if he succeeds, he will be the finest commander ever. And the look in their eyes, the acting that they do non-verbally, both of them, you can see the, the welling of their eyes, the heaviness of what they know they are telling him to do that he doesn't realize 
because he has no clue. He just thinks he's going to be doing his final simulation because they've just gotten done yelling at him <laughs> over the simulation. I just thought that that was a real good indicator of what great actors can do to elevate a movie in a way that you could have this same movie play out in a very B-movie kind of way. That scene, those people were able to make it so much more powerful for me. And part of that is because I knew it was coming too. But when you watch it in hindsight, you're able to pick that up. But they get to that end and the Ender's celebrating. It's crushing. It is a crushing moment because the, the kids are just like, yeah, we won the game. <laughs> and you flash up to the command center and all the adults are just standing there dead silent and stoic. Nobody's moving. Nobody's saying a word. No cheers. And you're like, what is going on? Why is this happening? And they never do. They never celebrate outwardly. But when they get to have that conversation, Hiram tells Ender, he says, you will be remembered as a hero. And Ender yells back. He says, I will be remembered as a killer. And Hiram says, all that matters is that we won. And Ender says, no, the way we win matters. Do you, you're nodding. I was about to say, do you agree? But the, the listeners can't yes. see you nodding. So absolutely, you agree yeah. with Ender? I, I absolutely do. Because the methods by which you achieve a goal are directly affecting those that benefit or don't from that goal. Look, I mean, let's take college baseball. If you had a team that cheated, a team that used loaded bats and, and balls and found ways to basically run up the score, they won. But the way they did it sucks. I mean, that's a terrible analogy. It's so obvious. But the fact is, when it comes to leadership, people trust you because of the way in which you actually lead. And if you're someone who is results-driven, you cannot kill people, literally and figuratively. You cannot leave a wake of dead bodies to get to that. Because what Ender shows, this is what I think is great about Ender's leadership, is when he takes over Dragon Company, he says, if I have an idea, if you guys have an idea that you think is better than mine, speak up, do it. Like he opens himself up for, for vulnerability. He's the type of leader who says, look, I don't have all the answers. I've been given this and I'm going to embrace it, but I'm not one man. This has to be all of us. And I think that's what he means is if it was just him making the decisions and if it was just him instead of his team the way in which he does that matters. Now, my question, though, is let's say this was a simulation. What would they do in actual battle? Like, would he would he pull the trigger? And this is what I think creates that dilemma, is if you believe something isn't real, do you let go of some of your morality? Do you let go of the fact that, oh, I'm not really killing people? I mean, take the first-person shooter genre, for instance. You have this idea of you know, loading up uh, Call of Duty, and you have so much fun going around and killing Nazis and doing this and this and this, but what if in that game you were actually killing real people? Would you enjoy it? Would you hesitate? And that's where I think the brilliance of that final moment is, is that when you believe something isn't real, 
you've taken the empathy out of the equation. You've taken the actual personal connection with the enemy out of the equation. And that's why I love the the um the quote that is at the very beginning of the movie, it's repeated, where he says, In the moment where I truly understand my enemy, understand him well enough to defeat him, then in that mo- very moment I also love him. That's the hesitation that I think hum- a human feels, is that ultimately we are wired to care. We are wired to have some kind of sympathy for those around us. Now, a lot of us are jaded to a point where we just don't care and we can see that it comes out. Case in point, you're in traffic and you're yelling through your windshield at the guy three cars down because he won't move. But what if that guy got out and said, what did you say to me? Are you going to back down? Are you going to step up? More than likely, you're probably not going to step into that because the fact is you're shielded literally by a pane of glass. The simulation, The simulation is the shield. And that's where I think the real interesting part of this movie comes from is that what is Ender's actual morality? What does it does it actually exist? Is he really a moral person or is he okay until the moment where he actually has to do something? And that's where I think the I I I really believe that Colonel Graff knew that about him that he wouldn't have been able to pull the trigger if it was real. The battle room is a great example of that. What do you do when you get shot? You just get stunned. Your body goes numb. You don't get killed. It's the it's the simulation, and he can do whatever he wants. And I think when Graf saw that, he was like, okay, this is what we're going to have to do. My question, though, at the end of all this is, did Graf and company have that in their head that they were going to pull the simulation bluff with anybody, or was it just because it was Ender? That's where I'm kind of curious. I think it was just because it was Ender because he knew Ender's heart. He knew the kind of balance he had of being both compassionate and physically violent and being able to kind of live in both of those worlds. So it's kind of a question for me, but I'm leaning towards the fact that Graf said, okay, we're going to have to pull this. This is going to have to happen. That's a really fascinating idea. I have not ever considered that. I'll be honest with you. Never really thought about what if Bonzo, for example, had somehow been the best that they could come up with would they have gone forward and had him know or was it crafted in a way that was specific to ender i still lean toward it was built and all of the training to me suggests that it was leading up to faking them out to believing that they were doing it when they weren't and that going from the training to a real life never would have worked. I don't I don't think that any the ideal candidate that they were looking for, obviously being Ender, they needed a certain level of compassion. And I don't think you ever could have gotten that. I think if you no matter who it was, there is no way you're gonna have the right balance of some anybody, I think, who would be willing to say sacrifice that transport with a thousand lives on it in order to accomplish the goal. I think that that type of person is predisposed to would cause you problems on other in other ways, right? Would maybe be too aggressive or too willing to risk lives. And I think that's what they love about Ender is that 
he is compassionate when he knows. <laughs> like Bonzo isn't. Bonzo is very clearly an angry person who was willing to hurt others. Ender was never wanting to hurt others even when he could, just because he could. And I think that's where it comes in, and that's why it had to be a simulation. I always believed, Patrick, that the the first simulations were real too. So once they get to the command center, I've I thought that and, and it's never really like strictly called out, but the way that they get so mad at him after that last practice run, and they're like, we only have one more shot at this. And like you, you're failing and you're, you're, you're throwing away assets, yada, yada, yada. I almost believe that once they get to the command, that it was all real at that point. And he was burning through actual like attempts to invade or whatever. But it, it just, yeah, it's, it is really a fascinating question to think about. Like what would it have been like if they had, told him. I just, I don't think you ever would have succeeded in the same way. I think that hesitation would have come into play. And that was the Absolutely. only way they were able to succeed, right? Mm-hmm. Is he's like, just go now, period. Surround the ship, protect it. I don't care who dies in the meantime. We're going to, we're going to have losses, but we just need to get us to the point where you can fire that laser. We'll get our one shot off and we'll be good. Which, by um, the way, is a fantastic visual shot of all those dude, planes so circling. Sick. So good. So sick. They uh, One of the highlights of the special features was them talking about the CGI and how much effort went into it and uh, the just the detail that they put into creating that final battle visually with uh, Gavin Hood, the director, specifically talked about it was built off of this idea that he had he was like, what if Ender was essentially a conductor of an orchestra? And when you watch it, that is exactly what it looks like. He looks like he's standing there conducting a squad. And there's this just big, gigantic, operatic space battle. He's controlling this fleet in space as if he was a conductor in a virtual reality game. And he said the other key was that they wanted to make sure it didn't look like a virtual reality game so that you would believe that when Ender was looking at it, he wasn't it it didn't look completely fake. Like it, it was, it looks real. <laughs> it it certainly looks like the actual fleet, but yet because it's CGI in our day and age, we also could believe that it was not real. You know, does that make sense? Like, I don't know they just did such a great job of towing that line. And I thought that was cool. I also uh, like the games that we got to see throughout the movie, like the cerebral games that he played. The, oh, the mind the, game with, with the giant with the, with the giant. I thought that that was, was the director, cool. by the way. Gavin I, I saw that. Yeah, and the, yeah, I was he, like, oh, look, he he throws himself in the he, movie. <laughs> he made a comment. He was like, he, during the documentary, he's like, every director's dream. I got to like be in my own movie. I was so excited. But he's yeah, like go ahead. BFG. Talk about the <laughs> the games and the the battle room in general. Oh man, I, I love the battle room. And again, there's this gentle way in which it gets introduced. I was reminded of this old 1980s movie called Robot Jocks, where they go into this. It, I know it doesn't matter. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a pre, um, Pacific Rim kind of flavor where you have giant robots that you control in there. Anyway, cool concept, not really great execution, but it's one of those kind of lame 
good movies that I enjoy. Anyway, but there's a there's a training room in that as well. There's no it's gravity. It's not in space. And I love how it gets introduced where Ender goes in, he pushes off, and we see where it's sitting. Like this command station is sitting right above Earth. I would love to spend like two hours in this battle room. I love how it's set up. I love that there are strategic places that you can hide. I love that it's a a place where Ender does different things to strategize in order to defeat the the different teams. Now we don't get to see all the victories. We see him kind of going up the charts. But just like any good commander, any good leader, he knows that place in and out. And it wouldn't be without Petra giving him you know, training sessions in there. He, she, she even says the battle room's open 24-7. And so getting him to be able to understand how to shoot his gun, how don't you know hold the trigger down, you've got to give it at least a half second to, to recharge. But being in that room, using the anti-gravity, I think is something really interesting because you have to be able to push off. Like it's it's zero gravity. It's not like moon gravity or Mars gravity or whatever. It's zero gravity. So having to navigate that and being able to kind of embrace Newton's law that an object will stay in motion after it's being put in motion. I love the way that he uses it to strategize and, and to win these matches, particular particularly with Bonzo and how he wraps himself or wraps um Oh, who is it? I think it's it's not being it's all a lie. I think yeah, he wraps they they cover him up, and again, it's I mean it's kind of foreshadowing what we see here. With it's the, exactly foreshadowing of the the ship. They're, yeah, which I mean, obviously that that that's you know, that's by design, but it was just so much fun to watch these battle sequences. I would love to see if there was a TV series like. Each week you have, it's almost like Quidditch, right? You want to see Quidditch. You want to see this, a battle take place in this room. And and all of the different games, you know, particularly the cerebral games, being able to just how it interfaces with him and how he's able to use that to eventually connect with the queen. I think he uses that kind of, I don't know if he has like some kind of telepathy, but there there are these things where each game that he plays, the way in which he engages with it is a means to make him better. It's not mindless. It's not like you're just sort of plowing through and playing FIFA because you just want to win the game. I mean, you're getting better and it's it's like he's integrating himself. And I think even, um, even uh, Major Anderson, she was saying, this has never happened before. I don't know. It's It's interesting how he is immersing himself with this cerebral game and how you know the things that are going on with him i've never seen that like why is why is valentine in that with him that that doesn't happen so clearly he has this ability to manipulate his environment manipulate these games that he's playing whether it's the battle room stuff or the cerebral ones but just overall it's a cool whole set of things that i'm like if I was good enough, I wouldn't mind playing some of these games myself to be a part of that. Oh, yeah. Zero G laser tag. Like, sign me up. Like, I, it is Absolutely. so, <laughs> it is such a cool visualization of one of the neater science fiction concepts I've ever read. Because I read that book first. And, you know, just the way that the stars 
they call them stars, those diamond-shaped blocks that are able to be positioned in different ways, and how simplistic it, it is on the surface. It's get from point A to point B across this big open space, <laughs> and that's all, that's all you're trying to do, right? And you would think that it would not be as difficult as it might be, but I love watching Ender's progression of tactics and how he uses different things. And like when they go in with Dragon Army in that first one, and before he doesn't rush into battle, he stops at the door and he's like, wait, this is not like it is other times. What is going on? And he starts one by one kind of using people to figure out what's going on. And how like, when they you know are able to like go out together at the beginning and come and, and shoot backwards to pick off the guys that are like hiding by the doorway that it's awesome. Yeah. And so it's a, it's more than one tactic. That's the thing. He doesn't commit himself to one way in winning the battle either. So he's not committed to like, you know, pass or fail. He uses different ways to get different level, like further down the road until he can get to the ultimate goal. It just shows his brilliance. But yeah, they're awesome sequences. And that was some of the coolest stuff too from the behind the scenes. One thing was they had Cirque de Soleil performers that were helping them do the wire work, the wire stunt work for the battle room scenes to with the kids. And they were talking about like how hard it was to act. So like you'd be swinging around having to put your body in these really awkward, <laughs> not normal positions but at the same time you had to keep your face acting in the way that you were supposed to be for the scene even though your body's like all in this completely weird you know way with a green screen and probably somebody like in a green uh, suit like running around holding your legs and spinning you and stuff it's amazing to see them filming it and look at how how cool it looks when you're it's like watching one of the marvel movies behind the scenes when you just see chris hemsworth in a thor costume and he's just on this like green runway all by himself (laughs) and then you see the actual scene and it's like this massive space battle with like robots and all this stuff you're just like how do you do that it's a unique kind of acting um but also i learned that gavin hood was in the army the director and it makes sense and, and they showed how he put them through like a mini boot camp and made them learn to march together and go and eat chow together in the same way that they would in boot camp and really learn how to f- act like they were in a military environment. And Patrick, you think it would be fun to play zero G laser tag? Well, they actually all went for a week to NASA space camp and they got to work on shuttle simulators and fighter jet simulators and in a low G environment to get used to this before they went back to the stage and did it using wire work. Super cool. The kids were like, the kids were like, it was worth it to do this movie just to get to go do that experience. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Gavin Hood's like the cool uncle that you want to hang out with. It's just totally. Yeah. I mean like how, how fun would that be if you were one of these young actors, like to get ready for your role, you get to go to space camp. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing. But yeah, I love it's, the the whole cinematic uh, adaptation of the battle room. It's just a yeah. complete joy. I me. think in general, Aaron, there's something really cool about 
when I watched this, it was reminding me a lot of Passengers and just a nice set design of of everything. Nothing felt overly – it was futuristic but not like sci-fi. Like if you check out a set of Star Trek The Next Generation or Voyager or something like that or Battlestar Galactica, I mean you've got clearly sci-fi type stuff. And this felt more like an extension of you know future, this is what it could look like. And I like the cleanliness of it. I like, and it, again, that's why it reminded me of Passengers is there was lots of whites and grays and just a lot of cool colors. But the set design overall from the moment that we get to – the battle station or to the the training station all the way up to the um the formic um command center that they took over after everything was down it it all felt like it was a great contrast those two because you go from this nice clean environment with a nice bed to oh look we hijacked this <laughs> the ship and you know here are your quarters and they're still okay but it's clearly like more rust type thing and metal and colder and you know you've got your reds and your browns and things like that and so I, I thought that there was a lot of care that was taken with all of that the battle room being another example of that but even just the tech the way in which you know the little tablets that they would hold or the the fact that when ender gets called to a new company he's like he's told you know leave your stuff follow the green arrows and i'm like what are other people have gotten recruitments what, what arrows are they following what, what green lights are they following so the the mechanics of this world that we get introduced to is really really cool and I, I think it's just if i had to expand on anything it would be just give me more of that world give me a prequel where the formation of this academy the formation of this new military how that came about i mean i don't think we're told what year this takes place and I don't think we need to because it's kind of cool to think that it could be 2055 or it could be 2455 for all we care because the, the tech is tangible. I mean, we could experience some of this stuff, but other stuff, it's kind of far out there that you're kind of like, yeah, we'll eventually get there. But uh, but yeah, I loved all that. I did as well. Uh, anything else about Ender as a friend, Ender as a leader, any other nuggets you wanted to touch on. I, I did wonder what you thought about the ending, but we kind of talked about that at the beginning, uh, how we both wish we would have gotten to see a sequel. Ender ends this with one of the great lines. He says, I need to find out if I'm a, as good at peace as I am at war, which is a beautiful like idea to walk away from this with. And that, and you did, you know, nail what happens. So essentially Ender is drawn at the end by the Formic Queen to her through some sort of telepathy, and that's like the Formic ability at play. It's not Ender having superpowers. And she's going to kill him, but it's because he shows remorse that she then gifts him a remaining egg and entrusts it to him. And then he goes forth in sequels to become speaker for the dead where he is essentially going to restart this race that he has single-handedly <laughs> committed genocide of it's, it's heavy, heavy stuff. And I, I do wish we would have gotten to see it because I think that it's really compelling as questions like this, but it is just 
complete it's a complete story if you see what happens afterwards like what is the fallout of that not just in the moment psychologically and emotionally but how can someone recover from that or can you recover from that and I, it's not about like whether the formics get built back up what's going to happen are the formics going to seek revenge on earth it's very possible ender could be dooming the earth to a future formic invasion and i think that's one of the great questions that would come from his actions right and then is he mm -hmm. making the right choice regardless of that possibility so yeah yeah it's a i'm bummer, feeling man. like i'm feeling like some cylon action is going to happen where you know they're going to regret the decision they made to restart the formic race because the formics are going to rise up and and take over and it, it does bring up a good interesting dilemma because at what point because the queen is not traveling with him he's got this egg just like kids don't have a connection to this tragedy that happened before they were born those formics that were born he could just restart that whole cycle and say yeah I'll give them a brand new history of what happened to their race that some other alien race wiped them out and the humans came in and saved them. You know, <laughs> to me, that's, that's the fall of man right there with, with Ender. We think we see Ender as this good, this hero, but what happens when he gets corrupted? What happens when he grows up, when he's not a kid anymore, when he's an adult and gets corrupted by the world? I think those are the questions that, I would ask, and this is someone who hasn't read the books to see that, but that would be an interesting path for him is, is he doomed to repeat the history that he fought against and can he, could he overcome that? So that's a, you know, Orson, maybe, maybe you write that story or whatever, maybe not. In the meantime, I think the Formics would be happy on Waterworld because they have exactly what they need and, you know, they could just live there. So <laughs> just bring What's them over. What's the Avatar world. world called? I forget what it's oh, called. It's, um, I was going to say Naboo, but that's Star Wars. <laughs> it's just water there. Nav they can well, no, the Navi are the, are the people. The Navi, Navi the people. that's it. Navi, Naboo, you know, whatever. It's no, easy to get Those are the confused. people, though. It's not, it's, not, it's not the place. I don't know what the place is called. But the Navi or who? Pandora. Lived. Oh, it's Pandora. Pandora. That's right. Yeah, there yeah. you go. There. It's go already Pandora. been like colonized, so just go chill there. <laughs> <laughs> They're not as pretty, though. It's they freak each other out. <laughs> well, you know, and we didn't even talk about like the other sci fi aspect of this whole thing that just doesn't even get really addressed but touched on at the very beginning is that the world is in a state of overpopulation, too, where Ender is what's called a third. And he's not even supposed to exist <laughs> like cause parents are not he's supposed to have more than two children. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's almost like a China's, you know, one child policy is in play because the earth has become so overpopulated at this point, which is a whole other like thing that could like really be explored psychologically, but it does play into Ender's own internal lack of confidence and kind of feelings about himself being an outcast and not wanted from the beginning. But right. yeah, that's an interesting part of the world building that goes deeper and also has connections back to Orson Scott card. And I, I want to say, I hope I'm not wrong here, but I want to say he was Mormon. Um, and it sort of has ties to religious views of his 
as well, there were, you know, some of that is obviously going to be injected into your storytelling, no matter absolutely who you are. Um, but right. yeah, I, I'm glad we revisited this because it, it was so good. Just, I love getting to rewatch a movie for this and it being awesome to rewatch the movie. I think that's yeah, right. the best part. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why we, that's why we handpicked the ones that are not in the theater. So, and even some in the theater. So speaking of which, that is a wrap on this episode of Feel and Film. And we will be back in the theater this week where we are hoping beyond hope that the Jurassic franchise lands on all four of its dinosaur feet and gives us a fitting conclusion to this world we've grown to love. We shall see. <laughs> Cautiously optimistic, I guess you could say. <laughs> Just don't sell dinosaurs in this movie, please. Don't sell them or try to make them fight each other. It's just, no. <laughs> Just finish it. Land the plane, please, Colin. Just land it. Anyway, Aaron, thanks for another great conversation. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.